Does the idea of death make you anxious? Or are you fully comfortable with your mortality? Either way, the awareness of death fundamentally impacts many different aspects of our lives. You're Going to Die, the podcast, is sponsored by the Ernest Becker Foundation, or EBF. The EBF serves to educate people about how the awareness of death impacts our behavior and beliefs, and relies on cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker's theories as well as current research. Check out the EBF's current initiative, the Mortality Awareness Preparedness Project, or MAP, M-A-P. MAP offers intro to death anxiety workshops for individuals, as well as workshops for advocacy groups to learn how death anxiety impacts us individually and societally. The EBF has presented to organizations whose work touches on police accountability, racial justice, gun safety, and reproductive health. If you or your nonprofit is interested in a workshop, learn more at ernestbecker.org and click on MAP Project. Ernest Becker's ideas have led to a flourishing field of social psychology that is now shown in over 1,500 studies that death affects the way we live, make decisions, interact with each other, create cultures, and structure our societies. The EBF also offers features and webinars examining how the fear of death impacts current ongoing social issues like climate change and racial justice. Stay up to date on the EBF's upcoming features, webinars, and events by signing up for their monthly email list at ernestbecker.org. Follow them on Facebook and Twitter at Ernest Becker Foundation or contact them at info at ernestbecker.org. Hey everybody, I'm back. It's Ned Buskirk here, back at it with the podcast. You're going to die the podcast, your creatively conscious mortality podcast. I mean, I was in the last episode. I talked plenty. I definitely did the things to get that episode in the world, but um, I didn't get to do this thing where I'm like very consciously speaking into your ear, uh, being with the listeners, just me hanging out with you. Yeah, we're just cruising in your car while you drive around heading to work or on that jog that you love to do or sitting in the cemetery where you sit usually. <laughs> do you? Oh my gosh, I just love moments like that when I, I don't know, I wasn't planning on saying it, but what if someone out there is listening to this in the cemetery? Please email us at pod at yg2d.com if you're that person. All right, I got to get to it. I'm not going to waste a lot of time. We got a great episode. If you don't know Megan Devine, you're in for a treat. And likely some of you are listening because you know Megan Devine. So you don't really need the precursor, the like how I have done You're Going to Die and so connected to so many wonderful other people working in the conversation of mortality and making room for grief. And I've got Megan Devine's book here, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, Meeting Grief and Loss in a Culture That Doesn't Understand. Uh, just feeling that moment again with the podcast opportunity to get to share space with someone who I respect and who informs what I do, actually. 
And uh, so that's what this episode is all about. That's the specialness of it to me. And there's so much good stuff that happened in our conversation that we're really sharing most of what we talked about, most the recording. And so let me just get to the introduction and let you see for yourself, hear for yourself. Douche, douche, douche. Okay, here we go. Megan Devine is a best-selling author, psychotherapist, and grief advocate with over 20 years in the field and deep personal experience of grief. She is the go-to authority for grievers, supporters, and industry professionals. Her pioneering work provides a professional, inclusive, and realistic approach to grief, one that goes beyond pathology-based reductive models. Her best-selling book, I mentioned, It's Okay That You're Not Okay, has sold over 250,000 copies and is available in 16 languages. New York Magazine's The Strategist named the book in their top 16 grief books recommended by psychologists in 2021. With engagement in the millions, Megan's original grassroots movement, Refuge in Grief, houses a committed and rapidly growing community of grievers drawn to her direct and validating approach. Her animated short, which I love, and I'll put um, <laughs> I'll put the links in the show notes for all this stuff. How to help a grieving friend has been viewed over seventy million times, and is used in training programs around the world. She's been published in Psychology Today, the New York Times, and the Washington Post, and has served as a grief expert for major media outlets, including NPR, iHeartRadio, and the PBS documentary Speaking Grief. In 2021, Megan launched her highly anticipated weekly podcast, Hereafter, uh, produced by iHeartMedia. The show aims to change how we talk about mental health by radically changing how we talk about grief. You know, I say to my guests before we start recording, I say, my hope is that we get to have what we need here. And I don't know. I never got to check in with Megan actually about it. I, I, I really do think we both had at least moments of catharsis to be heard and listened to between two people. But I say that to the guests because I know that if we have what we need together, then maybe it'll offer our listeners, probably actually, I say, it'll offer our listeners what they need too. And I hope that's the case with this episode of You're Going to Die, the podcast with Megan Devine. Peristaltic action is the nature of the universe, right? Contract, expand, contract, mm. expand. And like all things human, it's a continuum. Sometimes you do need to retreat back into your very tiny, cozy space where you're not pushing yourself because that is what you need. And there are other times when you need to push yourself past what feels comfortable into something new. And then there are times that you push yourself way too goddamn far mm -hmm. and you know it because you hit something. Mm right? So none of those things are wrong. It's really all just sort of call and response with yeah. yourself, with your environment. What does this need? So, I, you know, I, I don't see any of that as weird or strange behavior. It We're really always just doing call and response mm -hmm. with the environment around us. Like it's like echolocation, right? Mm -hmm. Where are the boundaries? Yeah. Paying attention. Like Paying attention. And also like far. for me, it's yeah. one of the things that I talk about a lot is like know your early warning signs mm. so that you can catch them and care for yourself so you don't have to yeah. smack into the sides like that. So you don't have to like have to pull over on your way into work and take a 16 minute nap because mm -hmm. you just cannot 
keep going, mm. right? So what are the early warning signs? How do you know yourself? What do you need in order to be able to show up? And I can tell you that there are days, weeks, months where I'm like, I know what I need and I don't even have the capacity left to give right. that to I've myself. I got the toolbox and I can't I got the toolbox and I don't care where it is because <laughs> yeah. it's too many feet away, <laughs> right? And yeah. that even that is... Even that is normal. And I, I really like the practice of mm. telling yourself the truth about where you are and then asking yourself, what would feel helpful in this moment? What do mm. I need? Mm-hmm. And the answer is is going to be different for everybody in different times, right? Yeah. Like you were saying last week after being at San Quentin, you were like, I needed to stretch into this. You know, it felt good, but it was painful, right? Like mm. getting up from a chair after you've been sitting there for too long, like it doesn't feel very good, but then it's like, oh, right, I move. Mm-hmm. And the same sort of intensity of feeling a week later is like, actually, that doesn't feel so good, mm. right? Yeah. In boundaries, boundaries within ourselves and boundaries with the rest of the world are always changing yeah. and flexing and they're so reliant on so many other things. Mm. So that's my, that's my spiel about that. And you asked Thanks. me, I think you asked me, like, when was the moment when I snapped? <laughs> <laughs> that that is, I don't even know that I asked that, but that's one of my that's my question. Is like it's, it's the like same as like when that. did you? Yes, I did. You might have heard <laughs> Which it in my brain. Would you like next um, in the queue? Yeah, when? Yeah. Did, well, I mean, maybe uh, specifically the moment where you're like this isn't working. Like you yeah. knew you needed to ha- bring in a team, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Like. Well, that has happened multiple times. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. In multiple different ways. So yeah. I would say the the, person, the yeah. honestly the first time I realized that my capacity was not limitless. Mm. And maybe this just sounds like I'm I'm not very bright, but the first time I I actually understood that my capacity was not limitless was the first time I did an in-person retreat for my um, writing your grief alumni. Mm. And I So real quick, just to clarify, yeah. can you describe really quick writing your grief? I'm assuming this is like it was a workshop and then you had an alumni event where people from all these workshops that could gather. Okay. Yeah. So writing your grief has been around as long as the company has been around. I think it's mm-hmm. I think I think Refuge and Grief turns 10 this year and the writing mm-hmm. course turns nine. Wow. So yeah, it's such an amazing, it's such an amazing place. So the writing your grief course is 30 days prompt a day, every day, a community that you write together. There are very strict rules in the community that govern what you can say and what you can't say. Mm -hmm. Not about your story, but just about how we behave with each other. Mm -hmm. So no advice, no judgment, no hijacking a conversation. We basically take away all of the habitual human ways to interact and don't let you have them. Oh yeah. And then rebuild the communication skills from there. Give me an example of like what's not an option. Like you said, uh, taking away you. We're not so doing it. So if way. if you're a writer in the session, <clears throat> excuse me. If you're a writer in the session, you're going to come in and you're going to. So you're responding to each day's prompts. You share your writing in the space, and you're talking about this memory of your dad. Mm-hmm. People are not allowed to come in and say, that didn't really happen that way. Mm -hmm. Are you sure you should feel sad about that? Because that sounds like a really beautiful memory. Yeah. Right. So you're not allowed to challenge Mm -hmm. anybody else's truth. Great. Right. Yeah. We either decide everything everybody said is everything someone says is true Mm -hmm. or everything somebody is saying is fiction and therefore doesn't matter. Right. Like, so like, no. Mm 
no, are you sure in mm-hmm. there? And mm-hmm. also no, oh my gosh, that entire thing happened to me. Like yes. we don't, that's not right. okay in the comment section. Mm-hmm. We influence God. each other all the time. You're right. The natural, that generally in our culture, that's what happens. It's like, exactly. what's the feedback? What do I have ready to say to this person's yeah. big thing? Yeah. Yeah. Great. So yeah. none of that is allowed. Mm-hmm. It is obviously okay to be influenced by other people's writing because sure. we are human relational beings. But what we want you to do is to start your own post yeah. and write about so and so's writing really brought up a strong memory for me. And oh, wow. then you go into your own story, right? Cool. So there are some very clear boundaries mm-hmm. and uh, guardrails. Great. And what happens is that people get a real lived experience of what kind of community and what kind of relationship happens mm-hmm. when you're allowed to tell the truth. Yeah. And have that truth validated and reflected back to you. Totally. It's the most amazing community ever. Yeah. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So... Um, a couple of years into writing that course. So we we run that course. We still run that course almost every single month all year round. Mm-hmm. So every five weeks, a new group opens. Uh, and we've been doing that since 2014 or 2015. Mm-hmm. I don't remember now, but every single month for like nine years. Uh, it's a lot of people yeah. and a lot of stories. And I used to run that by myself. Mm-hmm. So hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories, paying attention to that, witnessing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing? Uh-huh. You read everything? Every single word. Yeah. Every single word of hundreds and hundreds of people writing every single day, every week, every month, year in and year out. Mm. Yes. Yes. And that was fine for the first few years. And then I did... Um, so once you go through the the your initial 30-day course, you get moved over into the alumni community, which is made up of people who have, I mean, we've got old timers in there who have been there since 2015. We've got folks who just came out of their course session. It's a really amazing community. Mm-hmm. It's also really cool as a as a researcher and a, you know, whatever else I am, to be able to see yeah. the what kind of community gets created mm-hmm. in those spaces because like these folks became family to each other. Oh. Yeah. Right. Like I've got multiple, we've got multiple people in that alumni community who have done cross country bike trips and just stayed at different alumni members houses. We've Mm -hmm. got people who have, because we have writers from all around the world before Mm -hmm. the pandemic times, we had people who were doing international travel and just meeting up with the, the chosen family that they found inside these groups. So really amazing community. Mm -hmm. So we did our, um, at least under my watch, we did our one and only in-person retreat Wait, for alum. Like this is the only one you've ever done. Yeah. I won't do it again. <laughs> okay, tell me. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, it's just like, it could be a super traumatic thing and I'm laughing already, but I just, I'm so traumatic. Amazed. Like I'm, I'm, I'm good okay. now. Like I know okay, where my great. limits are, man. Bring it, bring um, the, and it didn't have anything to do with the people in attendance. Like mm. they're wonderful. I loved them. They, yeah. you know, they got what they needed to get out of it or they didn't, whatever. Um, but for me, I put myself in a position where the expectation of others, not of me or not from me, but the expectation was that I was available Mm 24-7. There was absolutely no downtime for Mm -hmm. a very intense three days for Mm -hmm. me. Mm -hmm. Other people could go off and like do their own thing. But for me, being the only holder of that space, there was no off switch. Um, So some of that was... uh, 
geographically oriented. Like the mm-hmm. place that I was staying was right next to the food, right next to the dining hall. So oh, literally yeah. every like, time I would leave my Denver. room, yeah. there were people waiting to talk mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you bring a bunch of people together into a new and unfamiliar space and there are logistics that need to be handled. And the power went out one night and there were some people who were really upset about that. And I'm like, mm-hmm. I, I'm powerful, but I cannot the control the wind yeah, today. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that that in-person retreat twacked me for many, many months. Mm-hmm. I I couldn't, it, it took me a very long time to recover. Mm-hmm. And during all of that time, I was still writing all of the articles, working on book proposals, speaking, teaching, running the writing course day in and day out, all of these things. And I don't yeah, say this to be like, oh, poor you, you were yeah, doing really fulfilling and powerful work like you poor dear. That's yeah. not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how hard I pushed past my own capacity mm. because I believed in the work. Mm-hmm. There was, um, fast forward a couple of years later, I had a couple of amazing people who were uh, helping to run the writing course and some amazing volunteers. Like people believe in this writing your grief community so much that they volunteer to moderate and facilitate and Mm -hmm. steward the groups, Mm -hmm. which is, I'm still like years later, still stunned at, at how much the work means to people that they, they will come in and bear witness like that. Yeah. So even, even bringing on help, the constant nature of that work, not just the writing courses, not, I'm not just talking about this, but like writing a book, doing media, writing more things, doing consulting, trying to make people understand that grief isn't a problem to be solved, like doing the work in the world started to have real negative health effects for me. I landed in the hospital twice. Oh, wow. I got frozen shoulder twice. I, um, any, any number of things I remember being at my massage therapist because I was taking very good care of the physical organism. But I remember being at my massage therapist's office for one of the bouts of frozen shoulder and just sobbing and saying, there are too many dead people in me. Yeah. And this is a real hazard of listening to stories. I'm just so glad to get back to this live in-person show last night, but this morning I was just thinking of all the people that needed hugs and the complications of that right now, but I was like, I'm game. You know, I said it. I was like, who wants a hug? Because I'm here to give them. But this morning, I just kind of was thinking, again, while I was doing yoga, I was like, what's going on? I can't believe I'm up because it was late. I was there late and I woke up at 6.30 and did this my little yoga routine in the morning. And I was imagining that I, I was so in the yoga, the physicality of it, I felt like I was like throwing stuff away from me almost with my posture and my pose and my movements. And I had this thought because it just seemed to be happening, you know, this thing I was doing this morning. And I had this thought thinking of those hugs that I was like, what am I, what am I needing to throw away from me? You know, what happened? 
And just hearing you describe that, just like that's feels like that's what happened. You know, that's what happens when we hold space sometimes. There's like absorption, you know, it's like here, let it go. And then fucking, where does it go? Yeah. Yeah. If I'm your, if I'm the receptacle for the pain of the world, we are screwed. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm. And this is, I think this is a really normal and really prevalent thing for anybody who's trying to keep their eyes open to the pain of the world. It's Mm. like, I mean, I can say it's not our job to hold it, that we're conduits, not containers. Mm. Conduit, which is yeah. awesome in theory, but that's not how <laughs> yeah, human it works. Really like that's good, not yeah. that's not fucking true. Yeah, that's not true at all. Right? There's also the um, mm. you know the uh, the the uh, concept of the sin eater. Do you know this one? Mm, yeah, but I want you to. Uh, tell yeah, me you want me to butcher it badly? <laughs> yeah, butcher, butcher. Because <laughs> the there's, there's like the, the institutionalized <laughs> history of organized religion mm. version of the sin eater, and mm. then there's you know a slightly less problematic version of it, but. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the, the sin eater don't at me or us, everybody, because like, there are so many different tellings of the story. So I'm just going to do my own version here. But, um, you know, the sin eater is like the person in the community that you tell your secrets to. It's like a precursor of confession. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much that you're absolved. It's that like the, this is the, this is the conduit to let the earth absorb what hurts. Yeah. You give your, in, in some traditions, it's like the, the form of a dragon or a serpent in other, in other traditions it ha- it takes different forms, but there's this real mythic quality to it. And I remember uh, in the early days of the work for me, my dad, who is this like, he's, he's become such an old softy over the last several years, which is really wonderful to see because he never used to be, mm-hmm. but he was like, Maggie, it's like you're the sin eater. And I was like, dude, you know that term? Like, that's amazing. Cool. (laughs) And that, like, that is that capacity to be like, Mm -hmm. you know, to to sort of eat the sins of the world. And if we think of, to be totally dorky here, if we think about the, um, the original Aramaic word for sin just means to miss one's mark. It doesn't mean to like fuck Mm -hmm. up and Mm -hmm. do something terrible, but Mm -hmm. like you aimed for something and it didn't quite land correctly so like where are the places that you missed your mark and yeah. how do we talk about those things so i just like totally mixed two weird <laughs> I, I love things, it I, great together welcome to the tired brain but <laughs> like this 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 capacity to bear witness this mm-hmm. being the container for the pain of the world in your corner of the world mm-hmm. i think that is something that a lot of people wrestle with because we Mm -hmm. do want to keep our eyes open. We do want to keep our hearts open. We don't want to look away from Ukraine or from the trans community or from communities of color. Like we don't want to look away from the blatant misogyny and racism um, in the the Supreme Supreme Court trials is what I'm going to call that. But like that whole thing, like we don't want to and we bump up against our capacity, our edges, our ability to keep our eyes and our minds and our hearts and our bodies open to that much pain mm-hmm. and not break. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So figuring out when is it okay to close my eyes and when do I really need to keep them open? I think that that is mm. a daily question. Yeah. Whew, thank you for all that. When you were laying on that massage table and, you know, said that out loud, I'm assuming, 
or whatever, it doesn't matter. What did, what did, what shifted then? Like, how do you, how are you a conduit or how do you move the dead people out or how do you not let them in anymore? Like what, what's the other side of that moment? It's a combination of all of those things. Honestly, Mm -hmm. I, um, let's see, where do we want to start with that? Mm -hmm. I, when I am doing training, especially with the people who um, who are the high touch points in the writing your grief community? Mm-hmm. We talk about the difference between intellectual compassion and emotional compassion. So, so when real they quick, first, sorry, real quick, you're training yeah. someone to help facilitate the. That's right. Okay. So right now, the writing your grief course is run by my amazing education director. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason we still have a writing your grief course and community is because I passed it off to somebody incredibly, incredibly, incredibly skilled mm-hmm. who takes care of day to day operations, mm-hmm. um, and she. She now has taken over for me, but um, training the volunteer moderators, the ones who come in and they're the ones that are like role modeling the right behavior. They're the ones who are making sure that every single writer feels seen and heard. They're, they are the backbone of that community. Amazing. Yeah. Um, and Kate still does this. So my my director, she still does this. But when I was still actively training those moderators, like we would talk about the difference between intellectual compassion and emotional compassion Mm -hmm. and Mm. totally made up, totally made up terms and categories here. I don't even think I made them up, but it's like the, because everything about being human is a gray continuum. Like, I think we have this idea that I'm either open to everybody's pain and I have to feel all of it or I have to shut myself off completely. Mm. And to me, like over the years of doing this work, a callus has formed and that's a good thing. Okay. That callus is not shut down, don't care, not listening. The callus is from a distance, I can recognize and even bow to your pain. I can hear it and it's not gonna tank my day. Mm. Right. And for me, that callus developed with repetition, mm-hmm. right? Repetition, self preservation, and also just familiarity. Like mm-hmm. once you, this is something else that we talk about when we're training. Um, when we're training people to either be moderators inside the course or what we're starting now is starting to train clinicians to run their own groups, Mm -hmm. which is really awesome. It's a really great way to get the work out into the world without Mm -hmm. maxing out my people. Yeah. So one of the, one of the, cool things that happens, cool, maybe in air quotes, because this is like the sociologist in me, like the whatever, um, the researcher, but every story is unique, obviously. Mm-hmm. Every story is is personal and powerful. And when you start to run, you probably have experienced this, but like when you start to run groups over and over and over again, you start, you start to see certain patterns and rhythms that yeah belong to almost every group, even though the individuals and the stories and the emotions are all unique and different, there is a rhythm to things. And this is, this is one of the first things that new moderators sort of, I mean, it's predictable that they wrestle with it at the beginning, right? They're like, oh, it's totally different on this side. Like this was my experience as a writer, but now I come in and like behind the scenes and I see how much effort it takes and how much touch it takes and how much time and attention it takes to deliver a beautiful, useful, um, highly skilled, smooth experience on the on the writer end of it, and um, so there's this sort of turbulence when you first get into that position of serving and listening, mm-hmm. and 
the more you do it, the more familiar those waves become. Oh, right. This is the time mm-hmm. when everybody's really confused. I recognize that. And here are the things that we do in this situation. Uh, yes. And oh, look, this is the time where, I mean, everybody starts, usually the writing courses start out gangbusters the first four days. Everybody who signed up is writing. Everybody is sharing. They're all doing this thing. And then it is so predictable. Day six, you hit a wall. Mm-hmm. It happens so regularly Mm. that I believe it is the prompt on day six Mm. that I wrote mm, nine years ago that says, did you hit a wall today? (laughs) Yeah. Because this is, this is the nature, like this is the cadence Mm. of group space. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter if you're doing basket weaving or you're doing like (laughs) writing your grief. There is a cadence that very often happens in anytime you gather um, a group of human beings together. So, that going back to that difference between intellectual compassion and emotional compassion, there is this familiar, familiar, familiarity yeah. that happens, right? Mm-hmm. And also that repet- that repetition of, or maybe it's like that bird's eye view of the group becomes a single entity instead mm-hmm. of an enti- instead of multiple people or multiple yeah. parts. I don't know if that makes sense. So the, yeah. like the more the more you do it the more you're able to get a little bit of distance mm-hmm. between yourself and the stories. Yeah. And the more you're able to see the, the single organism of that one community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and or- for oh. me anyway, that makes it, that makes it easier. So there, yeah. there's also another piece in this that we all have our sore spots and our not sore spots. Right. I, you know, and correct me if you're, if I'm wrong here, but like my guess is that you have certain stories that you hear that just wreck you. And it doesn't mm-hmm. matter how well fed you are, how much protein you've had, how hydrated you are, how much yeah. yoga you did before, you, how well I you slept. Yeah. Do it. Um, you know, the cancer patient workshops, I've run like four of those a week. And yeah, it's the, it's the moms, you know? Just yeah. destroys me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and to in my mom. The, mm-hmm. the repetition of that is never gonna change that mm-hmm. tender spot. Right? Yeah. For me, it is usually, it is usually, though not always, water deaths almost always get me. Mm-hmm. And the still. Oh gosh, yeah. I mean, that's never gonna not get me. Oh my gosh, yeah. Never going to not get me. Mm-hmm. And any death where the surviving people were there at the time and were powerless to stop it or intervene, yeah, always going to wreck me. Mm-hmm. Always. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I know my sore spots. Yeah. And this like this is what I think happens with time and with practice and with repetition is I know the things that get me. Mm-hmm. And so I know how to talk to myself when they happen, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, when, when we first started recording for, for my show hereafter, uh, we had a guest on who, <laughs> oh my gosh. So the, um, the amount of people who use water metaphors for grief, right? Oh like I'm, drown- I'm I, literally I, drowning. Like, I, babe, no, you're in not. In my book here, it's like undrowned yourself tonight, everybody. It's, you're so, that's no. so wild. No, zip it, stop <laughs> it. Right. Okay. So I'm literally drowning, babe. Mm-hmm. 
I have seen literally drowning. Mm-hmm. I have personally almost literally drowned. Mm. You're not drowning. Mm-hmm. So water metaphors are really, really, really oh common. God, and anytime, yeah. anytime I do, I'm going to go on a tangent here. Anytime, well, in the before Good. times when I was doing like panels or talks and another speaker starts using water language to talk about grief, as soon as that person is done speaking, I say, I just want to shout out to anybody whose loss involved water mm-hmm. that I see you mm-hmm. and I hear you. Mm-hmm. And then like, I've had to do that four or five times. And the person who said the water analogy comes up to me after they're like, oh shit, I'm so sorry. I will never use that word again. It's not personal. It's just like, don't do that. (laughs) It's just like words words have impact, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you've got like, oh my God, you almost gave me a heart attack. Like Mm -hmm. how often do we say that? Yeah. And if we think of how common and prevalent heart disease, cardiac yeah. events are like, and yeah. I, and, and I don't bring that up because I want everybody to be like hyper aware of their language all the time. Well, I mean, unless you're making accidental racist comments and then I do want you paying attention. Yeah. But, but I, I think about like war metaphors, like how often we talk about like, I'm going to kill it today. And you know, like I, yeah. I just suddenly someone brought it to my attention. I'm like, what am I, how, why am I using language like that when what's going on with the Russia-Ukraine war. Yeah. Um, you know, so anyway, just acknowledging the, the intention suddenly of like, oh, wait a sec, that does matter, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's not that we want everybody to be like hyper self-conscious about their language choices all the time. I think of it more as if and when somebody trusts you enough or is angry enough mm. to reflect back to you that your word choice is having a, a hopefully unintended effect mm. that we try not to get defensive about that and instead say, I had not realized that. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that to my attention. I'm going to try to be more aware of it in the future. Yeah, why not? Right? Yeah. So this person, going back to like my own tender spots. Uh, so we had this guest on and they they spent, gosh, I mean, it seemed like forever, but maybe like eight minutes with a very graphically detailed um, fast moving water metaphor with like going under and coming back and going under and coming back. And I think uh, we had a we had a different producer here. It was either that producer or Tanya like realized what they were saying and turned around and looked at me. And I was just like, I'm super good at compartmentalizing right now. I'm super duper good at it, right? Like, and I think like for me, because water metaphors are so common, I have to have that. I have to have that ability. I remember actually a uh, very early after Matt died. And, and for those of you who don't know, my partner died by drowning. I could not save him. I also got carried away by the river and also nearly drowned. Didn't mm-hmm. still hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was like probably like a month later and I was walking in the woods with a very, very good friend of mine. And... I was saying I had frozen shoulder at that time too, whatever, shoulder issues. But anyway, um, she was talking to me. How did we even get on the subject? We're walking in the woods. We're walking our dogs in the woods together, probably like a month and a half after Matt died. And she said something about, you should really take up swimming. I think it would be really good for your shoulder pain. 
right? Like best person in the world. She's amazing. She's like, you should really take up swimming. And I just stopped and I almost started laughing, but I'm like totally keeping it under wraps. And I went, I don't think that's going to work for me. Yeah. And she doubles down. She's like, no, it'd be really good for you to just like be in the water and be held by the water and like move your body in the water. And I'm like, can we, can we think about reasons why? swimming and getting into water might be a problem for me. Mm. And I just stood there for a second and like just blank face, mm. no hostility because I I know she had no idea. Yeah. And then all of a sudden this look mm. came over her face and she was like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I cannot believe I'm such an idiot. Oh my God. And you know, like I knew she didn't mean it. No, of course. I knew course. she didn't mean it. And yeah. I was like, it's okay that you forget. Mm-hmm. I don't forget. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, all of these things like, you know, fast forward a year or so and I uh, I had, was doing this little catering business and I had closed it for a number of reasons. And my mom goes, I don't know that that business is dead in the water for you. My gosh. <laughs> and I busted out laughing and I was like, it's not really a phrase I would have chosen. Mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And fortunately, um, she busted out laughing. She was like, yeah, that was a really bad, that was a bad turn of phrase. Everybody just want to drop in here for a quick second and say thanks for listening. Really mean that. It's nice to be back at it here after sort of a break from the last episode. But um, I'm also here to ask for your support. I know it's hard, these free things, we keep sneaking in the like, can you help us? But we're a nonprofit and um, we are not a billion-dollar tech company bringing in the cash to do all the sweet things. There's no M&Ms in the lunch area where I get free meals. Uh, And there's a coffee uh, bar with a barista who's hired just to make coffees for the employees. We don't have that going on. I'm in my garage. (laughs) I'm in my garage right now. Okay, but I'll keep it it short because this Megan Divine conversation is worth getting back to as quickly as possible. Listen, if you want to help support the podcast starting there, go to patreon.com forward slash YG2D. You can give as little as $1 a month um, and up, upwards of that. Uh, I think the max right now is uh, $5,000 <laughs> $5, a month. So you got a lot of options, quite a range. And we are posting stuff there irregularly, free materials that only you get as a patron through Patreon. So thank you in advance for going and clicking that. The link is in the show notes. And uh, also you can just look it up, patreon.com forward slash YG2D. YG2D is a 501c3 nonprofit. So you can keep in mind any and all contributions to what we do go through that organization, nonprofit write-offs included. So Right now, we're doing a big annual fundraiser. We do it every April, and we're looking to raise $25,000. 
with a stretch goal of $30,000, and we're actually pretty close to our match right now. So if you're listening to this in April of 2022, you know what, whenever you're listening to it, still go and click the link in the show notes and contribute to what we're up to. We will hit that goal. It's like everything. We will do all the things. We just need your help to get there. Your help, you, the person whose ear I'm sitting in. I'm yelling in your ear canal. We need your help. So please do go to the show notes, click on our fundraiser link. You can also contribute via Venmo at YG-2D, or you can PayPal Chelsea at YG2D.com. Any and all support is so welcome. Lastly, tell your friends about us. Share this Megan Divine episode with your people. Share it on Twitter. Share it on social media. Go into your app where you listen to podcasts and hit the ratings. Click the stars. Leave a comment. We really appreciate the support. It does matter. It gets the podcast out in the world. Share it with the world. If it matters to you, why not give it away? So really, I just want to end, though, with the first thing I said. Thank you for being a part of our community, for your listenership, and letting us be in your ear hole. Coming back to something we were discussing earlier about capacity and bearing witness and um, the ability to pay attention to pain, all of this stuff. So I was a therapist. I'd been in private practice for a long time, um, dealing with a lot of grief and a lot of trauma. I worked with a lot of um, medical providers and doctors, specifically younger doctors who felt like they couldn't talk about the death and suffering they saw at their job. And so I I was the person who would listen. Okay. Yeah. And when Matt died, it it wasn't that I realized that I was wrong, like in everything. Like I did want to call up all of my clients and be like, I was full of shit. I'm so sorry. Um, but more that th- my understanding of pain was expanded by orders of magnitude. Mm-hmm. And I really got to see how bad, how badly we treat other people's pain and our own pain in this culture. And and you referenced like the the section in the book where I'm talking about like the shit that I heard, mm-hmm. right? You know, the the one that you referenced was like, I ran into a, an acquaintance like three weeks, maybe four weeks after Matt died. And they said, how's your day going? And I said something like, not that great. And they were like, why? <laughs> I'm like, um, Matt died? I mean, that was and their immediate like response was, is that still <laughs> bothering you? Oh my God. Right? The man was 39 and he drowned in front of me. So yes, oh. still bugging me. Um, but other things like, you know, I have really good hearing. And so I would overhear at a coffee shop that he and I used to go to all the time. Like she must not be a very good feminist if she's this upset about mov- about losing a man. I thought I was the only one in the world who heard such trash, but actually a lot of women and, um, and femme folk here that sort of weirdness. Mm -hmm. So when Matt died, I quit. I closed my practice. I said I was never going back. I didn't have anything to do with humans anymore. I didn't want to talk to anybody. I had no capacity. There was no way I was going to sit with somebody else's pain when I was like, I can't form sentences. Oh my gosh, yeah. Um, I, I quit for two years and I said I was never going back. And 
I came back. Yeah. This is where we link back to, you know, me as a little kid and looking underneath the surface of things and knowing that I could speak into the stuff that doesn't get said, the stuff that doesn't get spoken. I didn't want anybody else to experience what I was experiencing. I didn't want anybody else going through the worst time of their lives and have to deal with the trash, well-intentioned and outright nefariously rotten from the people around them. Yes. Right. And I knew that I could speak to that and Mm. speak to it with skill and do both sides of that, speak in both directions, right? Mm. To the the grieving person to be able to say like, you're not broken, the culture is broken. Mm. Right. Mm. And to speak to the broken culture and say, you got to up your game, friends. If you want to be the loving, supporting friend you believe yourself to be, then you have to change everything. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. So this brings us back to what you just brought up, which is prolonged grief disorder. Um, I've been talking about it ad nauseum all week. Uh, it started, yeah. I think I started, I think I started my viral Twitter thread like last Friday or something. And I have yeah. like not stopped speaking <laughs> oh, about I'm it so since. About yeah, the it. we we I don't know when when you when our conversation here is airing, but there's a um there is a at least one podcast episode of Hereafter with Megan Tavine mm-hmm. uh, addressing prolonged grief disorder. So it is a big, messy, complicated thing. Mm-hmm. It is already in the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, the the basic the collection already. Of, mm-hmm. Already, yeah, it's been in there since um, last fall. Mm-hmm. The debate about whether it should be in there has been raging for around 10 years. Mm-hmm. People fighting ferociously on both sides. It's mm-hmm. in there. It's not going anywhere at the moment. It's not going anywhere. So it's in there. So the the uproar right now is um, how it's getting used, how it will get used, how yeah. the, just to be blunt and annoyed, the Pollyanna heads up their butt, people who decided that it was a good thing to put it in there and like created it and wrote it with their faulty science, um, with their faulty data. The utopian completely unrealistic view of how prolonged grief disorder would get used is that it will quote unquote um, legitimize grief in the eyes of the insurance industry so that therapists will get paid for their work so that if your sister dies, you can, your insurance will pay for treatment, will pay for therapy because you have prolonged grief disorder, which means that you're grieving wrong and you need intervention. So that's one thing. And the other thing, the other pushback that I hear a lot, especially from people, um, who haven't been studying this shit for a long time, is that it unlocks funding for research. And that is true. It is true that having a legit um, APA-sanctioned prolonged grief disorder in the DSM does unlock money for research. What research does it unlock? Mm -hmm. If we believe, and this prolonged grief disorder describes it, if we believe that being sad, that missing your person, that not feeling like bouncing back to old social habits or old relationships, having a really hard time finding your place in a world after your friend died or your mom died or, or whoever you've lost. Mm-hmm. If you are not back to all better within six, six months, then you have a maladaptive That's response. That's the time. It is, a, it is, is, a it is six, six months. months it's, you know, months. honestly, here, oh here's gosh. a really good example of how complicated this is. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm looking for in the diagnostic criteria. Like I know exact. I know this shit. Like I know what I'm looking for. I still can't find a clear answer on whether it is six months or a year. 
I know what I'm looking for mm-hmm. and I can't find it. So mm-hmm. the, the, the two things that I've found so far, the most clear and they're not clear. Um, one I've seen really consistently is it's six months for adults or for kids. Mm-hmm. The other stuff that I've seen equally consistently is it's six months for children and it's 12 months for an adult. Super problematic even in there because we know that kids often have delayed reactions to loss because right. their little brains mm-hmm. don't have the the cognitive capacity to um, understand what things actually mean in certain ways because they aren't there with their cognitive development or their emotional development. So if it is six months for kids, like any outburst of behavior, any like I miss my mom after six months, you have got, you, it's oh. a maladaptive coping skill and you need intervention and treatment. And then the same thing for adults, right? So let's just, let's give it a minute and say that it's 12 months, which Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter because what, what the general public understands is the medical community said that grief is a problem. You shouldn't be sad. You shouldn't be missing your person. You shouldn't be having thoughts about them. You basically shouldn't be distressing anybody around you with your continued, like mentioning their names. Even if the medical industry has some nuance around that and they mean only 4% of the population this will apply to, it's like trickle-down pathology, right? Like the the New York Times just ran an article on prolonged grief disorder and immediately I started hearing from grieving people saying, four family members sent me this article telling me, see, we knew you weren't okay. We knew you were doing this wrong. You should be all better by now. Even if it's been like three weeks since the funeral. That's right. So we community. weaponize yeah. what the medical community put in there, like because it's just like, oh good, we have an excuse to say that this person who keeps crying at family meetings, like we have an excuse now to say that they're doing it wrong because yeah. the medical industry backs us up. Right. So that's what you're seeing. You're seeing yeah. the weaponization of that. Yeah. And it's not just friends and family who read an article and then act unskillfully. It's also the therapists mm-hmm. who one, on one hand, believe that it is their job to to save people. There's a lot of that in the industry, right? Not saying that everybody does it, but that is a component of it. It is our job to fix problems. It is that problem solution orientation, which is just endemic in the medical and, and um, counseling fields. And because the, the pro camp for pro prolonged grief disorder, I don't know if it's intentional misinformation or what, but like this idea that it, gives people access to therapy because otherwise they can't get therapy. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a really weird argument because prolonged grief disorder just got into the DSM this fall, this last fall. So does that mean nobody ever got therapy approved by their insurance companies for yeah. grief before I mean, the it, end it, of it, 2021? You got ahead of me before I, I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, is there a way it could be good? It, and that's what I was thinking. I'm oh, like, I got you. I got you. like the therapy, yeah. well, people will get therapy. Yeah. But, I got you. I got okay. them all covered. Okay. okay. <laughs> so for, um, so one, we, people have been getting insurance reimbursement for um, psychotherapy and support before this went into uh, the DSM. So adjustment disorder, mm-hmm. which is used to be my go-to when I was in clinical practice all the time, like adjustment disorder. Adjustment disorder is really, is is literally like some big thing happened and I need a minute. Yes. <laughs> right? So adjustment disorder works. Um, part of the criteria for prolonged grief disorder is symptoms do not, are not better served by a different diagnosis. That's pretty much in every um, diagnosis or disorder in the DSM. Like, there isn't actually something that fits better, right? 
Well, lots of stuff fits better than prolonged grief disorder. We've been using them, things like post-traumatic stress disorder or adjustment disorder or certain things. We have actually had a, um, it's called a V-code. So the way that the DSM works, super brief primer is like seven eighths of the material is um, stuff that insurance will pay for if you make them. Mm -hmm. And then there's a tiny little one eighth section at the end of V codes, V as in Victor, V codes that we recognize as challenges that humans face, but insurance refuses to pay for. And bereavement has been a V code since I was in grad school. So 20 something years ago, bereavement was already in there with yeah. non-pathologized language. It's just that insurance companies refuse to pay for that coverage. So you yeah. have to give somebody a disorder in order to make the insurance companies pay. So that's the real problem. But we do live in a capitalistic insurance-driven culture. So we have to you know, serve people within those bounds. So does having prolonged grief disorder, a prolonged grief disorder diagnosis, unlock care? Um, we had things that were unlocking care before that. Okay. The other thing to remember here is you don't get a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder without the prolonged part. Mm. So... Let's just say for this example that it's six months. Right. That would mean that between the death and the six-month mark, you're on your own. Yeah. I mean, that's the piece, though. That's, this is where I'm like, well, okay, considering the system and everything you just acknowledged, mm -hmm. that six months... It's not easy to get bereavement support with insurance, right? I mean, that's what you're acknowledging. You can. So oh, then no, it's no, you like, can. Well, then a year later, you, go ahead. No, you you actually can. That was that was my point. Point one was you actually can, depending on your insurance company, yeah. you can get support during those first six months. We already had diagnoses that would do that for you. Post-traumatic okay. stress disorder, if that applies to your I situation, yeah, adjustment okay. disorder, anxiety. Mm -hmm. Like there are other tools in the clinical toolbox and you're or in the diagnostic like just toolbox. Saying you, you're a, you need to grieve bereavement. Like that's exactly. sometimes often not enough. But your point is like, this is more detrimental than it is fixing any of that shit. That is correct. So yeah. the argument that having PGD in the DSM is a good thing because it unlocks access right. to care not necessarily accurate. There were definitely things that we were doing before and there are things that, um, you know, if getting support in those first six months is like, that's really important. Yeah. So, you know, this doesn't help. The other thing is, um, one other argument was that having a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder would unlock, unlock the Family Medical Leave Act for some people. That is also not accurate. Yeah, okay. So family medical leave in the States does not apply to bereavement. You can take family medical leave sometimes to care for a terminally ill and dying family member. Mm -hmm. Once that person dies, family medical leave stops. Okay. The understanding is that you would then lean on your company's bereavement policy. Now we know the state of bereavement policies in the U.S. There is no mandate that says a company has to give you anything. Right. Um, and if they do give you something, it's usually three to five days. Some lucky folks might get seven days. Mm -hmm. So what are you supposed to do from day seven to the six month mark when yeah. you can get a prolonged grief disorder diagnosis? You're going to tell us, right? Because I, I, if I tell could you. only talk to you in 2003 when you're my, the company I'm working for is like, what the hell? When are you getting back to work? I mean, my mom had been dead for a week and the yeah. pressure, you know, this is like extra layered, right? It's not just, it mm -hmm. wasn't built into the company. It's just this it's time to get back to it, you know, and yep. that the, the, the our culture productive, and the companies is not. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, sorry. Yeah. I mean, the the big answer as to why we have prolonged grief disorder is capitalism. Yes. Right. Oh because God, grief is unproductive. The that's the sentence. Yeah. Exactly. That, that is the sentence, mm -hmm. friends. I mean, mm -hmm. that capitalism. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, um, thank you for having prolonged yeah. grief disorder yeah. in the DSM 
does not necessarily unlock family medical leave. It is true that after that six months or 12 months, which everyone is actually accurate, um, mm-hmm. let's say it's six months for, for just for the heck of it right now, but um, it is possible that at the six month mark, if you get a diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder, it is possible that that would then unlock family medical leave for you because you can, in some instances, get family medical leave for a mental health condition. Right. Again, I go back to what I said for point number one, we already had diagnoses that would do that. Mm-hmm. We didn't really need this one. Yeah. Um, but again, it's in there, whatever. Uh, the only the only point that I even slightly waffle on, <laughs> now, as I said, prolonged, the debate over prolonged grief disorder has been raging for 10 or so years. Yeah. I used to talk a lot more about it uh, before the pandemic. And some of my, uh, some of the folks on social media, when I would, rant about it back in those days, they had a really interesting point. And it's it's why back then I stopped talking about it, but I'm, I'm not going to shut up about it now. Um, <laughs> yeah. There are some people who feel like the official medical diagnosis of prolonged grief disorder validates their emotional experience. Mm. That the people around them have been judging them and criticizing them and telling them to get over it. Yeah just relentlessly. Mm-hmm. And if they're able to say, no, 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 this isn't like normal grief. I have prolonged grief disorder. It's an actual medical condition. Yeah. Then it's in a way a really messed up tool to defend your right yeah, up to against have a perfectly normal response to loss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It, so it's only have, that way because, have, yeah. Yeah, you actually have to agree that you're doing it wrong mm-hmm. in right. order to be <laughs> right. supported and acknowledged oh and validated I, for not doing it wrong. What I like it's like not even the disorder that's like the thing, right? It's that this the way it shines light on all of this shit. Yeah. You know, once again, or thank goodness, kind of. It's like, yeah, let's talk about it. Yeah. And knowing that I, it needs to be dealt with and maybe like even have decisions made about it, but that it's pointing at all this other stuff that's like yeah. broken around how and we this grieve. This is like, we I mean, we've just, I'm, I'm, I'm getting all excited about this part. So <laughs> this, <clears throat> it sounds so dystopian and it, and it really is a hot mess. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's a situation. Oh, I want to add one more piece to the dystopian puzzle. Mm-hmm. So this idea that it unlocks funding for research, blah, 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 blah. Uh, one of the pharmaceuticals currently in trials is uh, based on, oh, wait, just, you just, you just wait for the words that are about oh to come gosh, out. Yeah. It is based on substance abuse medication because the theory is that grief is an addiction. And so we will treat it with the drugs that we use to interrupt substance use, shut off the receptors in the brain that feel so that the person can go back to work. Oh my God. So this is what this is what having this diagnosis officially sanctioned is unlocking all of you folks who are saying, but it unlocks money for research. The research is standing on the foundation of grief as a maladaptive response to loss and we need you to be happy and productive. Yeah. Right. Right. Right, so it is functioning. Yeah, there is no way it's going to get built. It's not like this. God, uh, it's no. Right? There's no like this is a higher level consciousness, like more like human kindness and intention with the ways we talk about these things. Of course, it goes back to 
like you said, I mean, capitalism, capitalism. somebody making a lot of money. Yeah. And it, it really goes into, for me, the even bigger picture here is this is how much grief scares us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have built an entire capitalistic culture to keep us from feeling. Yeah, right. You know how big and monstrous capitalism is? You know how big and monstrous systemic racism is and misogyny and otherism and all of these things, all of these tools of capitalism and separation and all of these things, they are all a reaction to big emotional human feelings that we do not like because they threaten to destroy us. I mean, to bring it back to Matt, what happened with Matt, his death, and that one of the ways you dealt with it, and this is an acknowledgement for you in, in considering this context, that you fucking quit. <laughs> you know, and, and I mean, we have, of course, I mean, you, you can acknowledge this, but I just want to say, like, there's ways I demanded room mm-hmm. for my dead mother and my grief from that loss. But I had the privilege or the money right. or whatever it was to be able to do that, you yeah. know? I mean, I can say, and I have said a lot, like your grief deserves space. Mm-hmm. Let it take up all the space it needs. But honestly, who has access to that kind of space? Mm-hmm. Who Who is afforded the privilege of grief? And I don't mean that grief is this great thing that we want to celebrate because it comes from something in, incredibly intensely painful, but the people who get to sit with their own pain and sit with their own hearts. It is not the single mom working four jobs just to put food on the table, right? Mm -hmm. Like, so grief is a social justice issue, Mm -hmm. right? Who has the luxury of their very human pain? And how do we start creating systems where everybody's loss is valid and everybody gets to access that kind of support? Mm -hmm. That's not the world we have yet. It is not. Mm-mm. I will say that having just described this really dystopian present, as somebody who has studied this process, watched this process, probably from the time I was a little kid and then just like got super honed in it in the last 14 years or whatever. Yeah. Even five years ago, we wouldn't have seen the public backlash to... New York Times articles and Washington Post articles and a a Scientific American article saying that the whole world is at risk for prolonged grief disorder. We Mm -hmm. would not have seen so many people saying, fuck you. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't have happened. And uh, I did an interview yesterday with the journalist who wrote that New York Times article. And she said she was, she's lovely, by the way. Oh, wow. Uh, She Mm. has been amazed at the... At what at the ripple effects at what has happened about the community mm-hmm. the conversations and the outrage and the whatever like that mm-hmm. there is a lot more this is bad shit mm-hmm. than there is this is a good idea so yeah. I think you know five years ago you would have seen you know like maybe a third of the pie of mm-hmm. public response being like this is yeah. stupid this is wrong blah 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 and you know ten years ago so uh, this what year are we in for thirteen. <laughs> Time is meaningless. Um, you know, 13 years ago when Matt died, none of this was out there, mm. right? Yeah. It was You're right. so hard to find anybody 
talking about grief that wasn't either heavily Christian, which did not apply to me, mm-hmm. or presumed that, you know, as a widowed person, I had to easily be in my 70s or my 80s. And then we have, you know, the the pastel colors and the hushed tones and the the doves. Like there really wasn't no conversation. There were there was one person, shout out to Michelle Neff Hernandez of mm-hmm. I believe it's called the Soaring Spirits Loss Foundation mm-hmm. now, but she was the only person that I could find 13 years ago wow. that um, looked like me and sounded like me. Yeah. And uh and the world is much different. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I, mean, I think that's a really it's really hopeful. It is mm-hmm. a hot mess. It is a disaster. And mm-hmm. this is what happens when you take the veneer of okayness off of these mechanisms and you start actually listening to the humans underneath them and you give humans a voice and you tell them that they're normal and they're healthy even if they feel like crap and they will come back fighting. And that's, Mm -hmm. I love that. I think it's really hopeful. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Megan. Uh, I honestly, like, I, I just feel like that's the end. I could talk to you for like three hours. But I just feel like we would like we would notice a, a steep decline <laughs> yeah, in my right? capacity to Let's put stay here at the actual top. sentences. Let's stay together. here at the top of our game. Um, I really mean it, Megan. I'm just so enjoying and getting so much out of talking with you. And we'll just do it again uh, okay. many, many months from now. But but this feels like <laughs> after, we've yeah. <laughs> after six after months we've of that, you know, and yeah. eaten something other than granola and bananas. Exactly, yes. yes, like I ate last night for dinner. Um, uh, but I want to just, I just, I just want to acknowledge you for the thing that I relate to, and I'm not trying to compare or put myself on the level of what you've accomplished with what refuge and grief. And it's not whatever. It's not the point. The point is, and it is, it's almost like you answered a question I did really have this idea that like, okay, Megan's this example of how you turn the grief and the brokenness into like something really great. And the risk of that though, because the point of what you create is that it's making room that that never happens. Maybe that it's just like, we're holding it. We're going to be with this thing. You're, you lost this and here's the grief. So weave it in, make room, you know? Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be like made better or turned into some gift. It's just like, hold it. Um, yeah. But you did something like what I did, which is what a refuge in grief is the thing you were looking for. That you- Right, it's time travel. Yeah. I created, I created the world that I That's needed. That's you're going to die is for yeah. me, you know? And- just as you mentioned, I think what gets tricky is as a function of that grief-averse culture, don't want to feel things. We we want to know that like, okay, these things would never happen to me, but if they did happen to me, I would find the gift in it and then that would be enough and I would be okay, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a real temptation to fall into yeah. that. And, and you know what I say about that stuff is- what? Um, one, one, you're right. You don't need to turn your experience into a gift. You don't need to do a damn thing with it. You can like do whatever you want. Doesn't matter. Um, Matt's life was not a trade for the work that I've done. We're not going to reduce, we're not going to reduce humans to a transaction. Right? Yeah. Like, how dare you Mm. say that the impact that I've made, the work that you've done, that the cost was somebody else's life. How dare you? Mm -hmm. 
And what beautiful life did we not get to live because of the beautiful life we are living? (laughs) Mm. Right? What did the world lose? I don't know. If you want to get more Megan Devine, go to refugeandgrief.com or you can go to Megan Devine's website at megandevine.co. And all these links will be in the show notes. But definitely pick up your copy of It's Okay That You're Not Okay. It's been so good as someone who holds space and is so compelled towards the conversation of grief. You know, if you're one of those people, but I really highly recommend it if you're in the throes. It is just such a well-written book for meeting someone in that tender, difficult, complicated place. Um, but thanks to Megan Devine. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Everybody, including you, Nick Jaina. Uh did you enjoy the <laughs> conversation with Megan Devine? It was so nice to I don't mean get to put to you hear. on the spot, but there's no one else here. Well, that's the, this this section of the podcast is called "Put Nick on the Spot." Um, <laughs> it was so welcome. Nice to- we got to put in, <laughs> wait, wait, wait. We got to put in some music, ladies and gentlemen. It's put Nick on the spot. Nick Jana. It was so nice to get to hear you speak with somebody who also takes on a lot of takes on a lot of other people's grief and has had to negotiate the boundaries and limits of your own capacity and vulnerability. And I thought it was really interesting to hear her talk about like not uh, well, she did call it being callous or forming a callous, I guess, limits to how much you take take into your body and let stir around inside of you and affect you versus still being you, still being present, still providing as much or even more to people, but um, having a little bit of separation between the the living, breathing, loving person that you are to your family and the person that you are to these other people. And I, I, it was great to hear you talk about that because I know, I mean, it's similar for me too. I don't do it as intensely as you do, but I have a lot of students and writing classes and memoir, and there's a lot of deep feelings. And sometimes even just the good things are hard to keep separate and detach from and then go back to just like normal life doing a crossword, you know? Yeah. Well, I don't relate to the crossword part. Um, I do <laughs> really. Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have thrown that in there. Yeah, you really, you lost me. You lost your audience. You got to think about what you're throwing out there when you get that specific. Uh, Sudoku. Um, 
would be mine. Uh, yeah, you know what? It's great. This is great because you reminded me what was happening when I had that that interview with her. The night before was our first live in-person show up in yeah. Santa Rosa, north of, of San Francisco. And I came into that two interviews I did that day. And I was just particularly cracked open because of having just done that event and have it gone perfectly. But I was just, just so affected still and emotional and raw. And so when I got to have that conversation with her, it really landed right in me feeling the, this is the impact of what it means to hold space, especially in with human physically, like physically together and, and how, how different that is maybe in a, its own exhausting ways from being on Zoom and that Zoom also has got its own exhaustion to it. But having done mostly stuff online for years and then get to be in person with people, I was just really feeling it. And so a lot of that conversation landed for me right in what you're describing. This this having someone who's been doing this work longer and is a professional in more ways than I am with her career and schooling who really was saying stuff that just cut right to that part of how I was feeling then and how I feel generally. And maybe more and more just with as much as we're doing. Um, you know, this weekend we did our Alive Inside prison program in Phoenix, Arizona. And I don't, I think I might want to talk to you about like the in-person experience lately, but what I want to say to connect to this particular theme that we're addressing out of Megan Devine's episode, I, I was sitting in the front row next to everyone that shared in this Alive Inside open mic, like more like a restorative justice healing circle, grief space, people just getting up and yelling and crying, mostly, you know, everyone that got up cried, exonerees, you know, people that had been incarcerated for decades got up and shared, family members of them uh, who've lost their loved ones to the prison system for decades and then had them come back. But, you know, all the grief and impact of all that and the the lawyers and the legal aides, you know, people just, just really in the brokenness uh, of the system and the impact of these, these, these realities on their lives. And I was just sitting within a couple feet of everybody. And I really felt and remembered what Megan had said about holding dead people in her. I felt people like their ex emotional expression, like moving through me. Um, and just knowing as we do more and more of this, coupling what we've created with the two years of a pandemic with all the things possible that we do in person. You know, it's not like we're just like, let's move it all to in person. All the things we're doing online is still, they're still happening and we're going to be in person more and more and just feeling that and, and especially physically, you know? Um, so that she just said so much of what I needed to hear and, and need to start remembering or need to keep learning about taking care of myself, uh, that we all need to remember when we hold space with anybody, not just officially in an organization or a workshop, like what it means to go to anyone that's in trauma and pain. Cause we also don't have a lot of practice, I think in our culture of doing that and well, and, and with self care and mm -hmm. deep consciousness. Yeah. Do you have any scene changing practices when you move from an intense show or session back to 
you know, normal life that you do? Um, I guess during the two years of the pandemic, I've gotten a little better at having some rituals that help me drop in. Mm -hmm. So then in a way, I guess having them to like complete and blow the candle out, you know, something simple as that certainly helps. I think there's just more and more of the breathing and being quiet. Uh, not much more significant than that. And not very embarrassed to admit that a lot of times it's just, can I have that ice cream and sweet treat and watch Mm -hmm. uh, another movie that's like action packed and entertaining in that way. Mm -hmm. Cause I know there's like, that's not the healthiest way to do it, but it is like a decompression that I just feel like I can own now and not be like ashamed or guilty about. Um, you know, some of the, some of the things I, I sort of am reaching for that I think matter actually and have for years is the time I have to be alone after an event or even before it driving back from Santa Rosa, which, you know, is, is an hour and can be more than that. But late night, midnight after the show we did in Santa Rosa, just getting that quiet drive and, and maybe having music on and being to contemplate and in the darkness, I would Mm -hmm. do that, you know, for years at the open mics we did here in San Francisco being alone on a walk home, uh, which is 45 minutes, let's say from the usual venue that we would do the shows at and just giving myself that processing time to kind of revel in it and maybe cry, but just decompress, just moving my body or being in the dark. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, we've, we've talked about this a little bit and you can relate. I know a lot of people can to when you work in your living space and feeling like what I just described is the thing I get from doing live in-person shows and events and workshops. What I, what I didn't have when I would do a workshop for cancer patients here in my house and walk out of the office space into whatever is going on with my wife and kids, you know, like no separation, you know? So it's still a learning process for me, you know, of finding that stuff that I know is healthy, healthier. Yeah. Sometimes after like a particularly intense moment, especially if it had any negative uh, vibe to it, I've done tried to do exactly what a dog does when it like, you know, gets confronted with some other dog and then walks away the way it'll like just shake off for Mm -hmm. like, just like five seconds and just try to like allow my skin and muscles to shake around my skeleton as much as possible. And just kind of like make a sound of just like, "Ah," you know, and just shake, shake off the, the, the energy of the moment. Yeah. You know what? I don't know. Where do you think you picked up on that? Cause I remember like reading something from someone and talking about in, in their writing. And I, I really can't remember who or where I read this, but that idea that animals so naturally have that ability to shake off like an upset, you know, upsetting interaction with another dog or like a duck shaking off some like, uh, you know, aggressive interaction in nature that it's just so built in physically for them to move the upset through them. Like you just described, do you remember like learning that somewhere or you just kind of picked up on it? Cause you just noticing animal being in the world. Uh, my friend Oriel pointed out to me like a few months ago, that specific thing. And I was like, Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Cause uh, you know, I've, I've done other like ritual type, just, sort of miming like cutting cords from my heart 
or like cleaning just things around mm-hmm. my body, yeah, which is I also helpful. But I remember her saying that um, in a discussion of how do you, she's a therapist for like, you know, challenging, uh, I, I don't know, kids in challenging situations. So there's a lot of like difficult, like energy to like move on from. And she mentioned yeah. that as, as one practice. And I was like, oh yeah, it's so simple. You know, it can just be like a few seconds to just get it off you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, thanks, Nick. Yeah. Thanks for, for always the extra processing. It is put Nick on the spot, but sometimes I feel like I clarify like little hanging threads of, of this, this work with the podcast. So appreciate the, the time we get to kind of tie the loose ends off. Yeah. And thanks all of you, everybody for listening. Super grateful for you. Like I said, become a patron at patreon.com forward slash YG2D. You can also support our annual fundraiser happening right now. You can click the link in the show notes, go into your podcast app, click a star, put in a comment, give us a rating, and also share this episode with someone you care about. Just one person. It's all it takes. If it mattered at all, just share it. Send them a link right now. Text them. Do it. We'll wait here until you're done. Um, <laughs> I kind of got to go. I don't. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> you didn't no. say we had a hard no, no. stop. No, I'm. T- I mean, could, <laughs> I mean, if we're just sitting here, I thought. Or maybe. Yeah, we, I mean, you could just do something else. You just have to do yeah. something else. You could do it on your computer. Oh, it looks. The, okay, done. everybody. We'll be. Oh, it came through. <laughs> God bless you and yours. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Ned. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) Until next time, see you in your ears.